Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. I'm Faye. And I'm James. It's been another busy week, Faye. What have you been up to? So the big news this week was about Cambridge Tech Week and the launch in Cambridge. But let's come on to that. So a couple of other things that I did. I went to a Cambridge Network event with Dougal Shaw, who's a BBC journalist. He does the videos on CEO Secrets and has just launched a book. So... I went to see what he had to say and what insights he had. And actually, it was really interesting because I think he gave more away about producing the videos than he actually did about the CEO secrets. Uh, is this signalling a move into video then for us? Oh, God, no. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything worse. No one wants to see this. Yeah, it's, it's bad enough here with our dulcet tones, isn't it? <laughs> uh, so that that was interesting. And it was, a re- you know, Cambridge Network are putting on some really good events at the moment, you know, very different to just a normal membership type event. So that was good. And then before the Cambridge Tech Week launch, I went to Andy Neely's Leaving Drinks I think we've announced it already that he's stepping down from the SVP role at the University of Cambridge. So that was really nice. You know, it was probably such an eclectic mix of people because it was the academic people, but also the business people Mm. and a lot of public sector and councillors were there as well. Yeah, he's going to be missed. And Cambridge Tech Week, let's start talking about that because... It was hosted by this like really good person, really nailed it. Really? Yeah, very relaxed. So sure about that. <laughs> very relaxed, yeah. But <laughs> it was hosted by James. He was you were the, the official MC of the evening, weren't you? I was, but no beatboxing. Yeah. No, the, I thought the panel discussion was really good. Had a couple of uh, guests that we've had on there, but so Pam's been on before. Well, we've had Scott from Pragmatic and David, the new CEO, was on the panel. Yeah. Carmen from uh, New Quantum and um, Harriet from Cambridge and and Cambridge Ahead. Really good lineup, really good conversation. Lots of friendly faces in the audience. And uh, yeah, it was a really good event, a packed house. Yeah, it was. And and we are, again, the official podcast partner for Cambridge Tech Week. Mm-hmm. And there's an event next week in London. So we're going to make sure we've covered some elements of that and it will be on the podcast the week after. Lovely. And uh, no doubt we'll be talking a lot in the run-up to the event as well, which is in September. It September is. the 9th, that it week? It is. Yeah. Yeah. It is. We pre-announced it, remember? But we didn't Did you get, get into trouble. trouble? No. No. <laughs> Did I egg? We're, we're good at breaking embargoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oops. All right, swiftly moving on. Good job, buddy. One of us works in comms. <laughs> James, how, how was your week? Well, that was pretty much my week. I mean, the you know, Bradfield stuff's busy. Lots of interesting thing going on at the, at the Bradfield. And yeah, preparation, uh, talking to all the panellists. There was some preparation. It might not look like it. Good. Are, you, are you going to pick up that trend for the podcast as well? Or just keep winging it? <laughs> wow, shots fired. Probably just keep winging it. Okay, good for you. <laughs> Ah, should we um should we do the serious stuff and do the news read yes lots to get through this week do you want to lead us off sure um first of all with jagex so cambridge video games company jagex has been sold by the nasdaq quoted global investment firm carlisle to cvc capital partners fund eight and haveli investments no figures have been released for the sale price but the acquisition is understood to be valued at close to one billion pounds 
Cambridge Mechatronics Limited has closed a funding round of more than $40 million to fast-track its accentuator and controller IC product portfolio to accelerate next-gen smartphone imaging technology. The oversubscribed round was led by Atlantic Bridge with Intel Capital, Supernova and Sony Innovation Fund. The next piece of news is from Umphi EV, and you will remember we've had more rag on on episode 22. So Umph have now hired a new CEO who's called Mark Ottolini. Mark is a seasoned technology entrepreneur and will be a key part of Umph's mission to revolutionise the EV charging landscape. News from Arm. Revenues for the Cambridge-based Superchip Architect were up 14% to $824 million in the third quarter. The company's second quarter on NASDAQ. The share price is going really well, if anyone's watching that. Royalty revenues of $470 million in Q3 was up 11% year-on-year and also saw better-than-expected license revenue of $354 million in the third quarter, and that was up 18% year-on-year. Alchemy Technology has launched its Discovery Lab system, which it says can reduce the carbon footprint of the fabric dyeing process by 85%, eliminating 95% of water waste and decreasing the amount of chemicals required for the process by another 30%. So that's certainly something impressive numbers there. And finally, deep tech startup Nanoprint Innovations has moved into new office and lab space at the Maxwell Centre in Cambridge after a whirlwind six months. The green tech company is focused on developing next generation coatings for photovoltaic applications with an initial focus on the solar panel sector. So that's the end of this week's news. So James, tell us about this week's guest. Yeah, this week we're joined by Owen Thompson, who is the CEO of Cambridge Future Tech, who are a new style of venture builder with a really interesting business model. So looking forward to this one. So welcome, Owen. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start with getting to know you a little bit better? So um, give us a little run through of your kind of background before Cambridge Future Tech. Yeah, okay. It's funny because I've been doing a lot of pitching in the last year, and I I always have to tell this sort of story as to how I have this completely different background that I promise you is connected to what I'm doing now. Um, I started off in the Royal Air Force. I spent 14 years flying jets. Most of that spent flying the Eurofighter Typhoon. And toward the back end of that time, I specialised in electronic warfare. Coming from a a family of software developers allowed me to sort of exercise my inner geek and start to get down to the tech side a little bit more of what was going on. And I naturally kind of uh, moved across to BAE Systems, our our large defence and aerospace prime, when I left. And that allowed me to work a little bit more on the tech and the strategy that goes into that environment and to start to essentially work on the opposite side of the, the corporate deep tech side of what was going on, culminating in a role running the Advanced Technology Solutions Division at BA Systems, which was essentially running two of their R&D sites, one working on microwave materials and one with MEMS and printed electronics. Okay, already there's a lot to unpack there. So a family of software engineers, tell us more about that. Yeah, hilariously, my dad actually at one stage, I'm not sure people probably probably know him who listen, back in the day, maybe about seven years ago, my dad was CTO of Jagex up the road. Okay, Only about four buildings up, isn't it? Okay. Yeah, so dad was always a software engineer in games, um, working for Microprose, Atari, Jagex, um, and those sorts of companies. And uh, my brother's a software engineer as well down in Bristol. So yeah, I skipped that part and uh, had a very different career path. Interesting. So the RAF then, obviously a huge amount of experiences there. What Have you found any of those have been transferable to what you then did when you moved on to BAE Systems and what you're doing now? 
That is an interesting question. And I think I've spent about five years trying to explore that and trying to be, to be more tangible about that. I mean, when I left, I was of the opinion that nobody would need a fighter pilot skill set on the high street. So I tried to immerse myself by going to a master's degree at the university in entrepreneurship and trying to learn from other people's experiences as quickly as I could. But I think over time, particularly in the founder environment, there are some particular traits which are useful to have in the face of operating in this environment. So I think they are both environments of extreme uncertainty and that, and and it's very difficult to put into words the ability to kind of consistently operate in that environment effectively. But I think there are some traits in there that cross over and certainly some training that gives you that mentality to be able to consistently operate in that sense. I mean, from a layperson's perspective, it, it would feel like you're going from a very structured environment to a very fluid environment. Right, that's true. And one of the things I learned when I got to BA Systems was actually that leadership is very different outside of the military than it is inside. And I found it actually much harder outside. So when I left, I was a squadron leader up in Scotland on a, a frontline typhoon unit. And what I found was that whilst there are certainly massive challenges in leadership and management in that environment, you have a team of people who are who are there because they've volunteered to be there. They're, they're trained for specific roles. They've been filtered, aptitude tested, streamlined, like for years and years before they get to the point where you're managing them. They all know their specific roles. It's a very set environment in that sense. And whilst whilst leadership in the air is very different to leadership on the ground, that presents a very different set of challenges to coming out and trying to run a startup where there are an infinite number of diverse personalities and people and roles and there's no structure and you're having to define people's tasks. And sometimes if if I don't provide enough clarity, then people don't understand what I want them to do. Whereas in, in the military, maybe people know what their role is in the first place and you don't need to provide that particular part of the guidance in such a strong way. It's difficult to explain, but I did find it more complex when I came out having to organise groups of people in a way that I hadn't had to in in the military. Mm. Yeah, and a huge culture shock going into that corporate environment. It's, I mean, it has to be, doesn't it? I would say it's the reverse of what James just suggested. I would think it was harder because you, you're, you're following a whole different set of rules that are not as structured as what you were doing, first of all. So t tell us a little bit about what you were doing in BAE Systems. You said this was kind of your first real introduction into deep tech. Yeah, I mean, I joined as an aircrew advisor for weapon systems and mission planning systems, which meant that I was very much still surrounded with with my people who, who were all other ex-aircrew types. And mostly the role was about integrating new bits of technology onto the aircraft and going out. There was a little bit of sales involved, going out and running campaigns overseas where we were trying to sell the fighters to other countries. And so it was kind of a soft introduction to the culture change. And then I moved up into a, a separate role where I was running a, a head of training for a central training team. And that's when it started to get a bit more techy. So we were looking at next generation training strategies, how a company that traditionally is an aircraft manufacturer is going to still be relevant in a future where 90% of flying is synthetic. And, and how do we remain a prime in that environment? And how do we sell that? And what's relevant? And what do the customers want? And then you're starting to look at M&A, partnerships, where does that tech come from? How much can be R&D'd internally? And that's a really interesting challenge in, in that sense. Then ultimately, I ended up actually on the manufacturing side on the advanced technology solutions area. So it was a, a very, very extreme transition across those three areas. So you, you kind of describe there that you're, you've got your technical skill sets, you're building your business skill sets and your 
entrepreneurial skill sets. What was the decision process like when you decided you want to take that next step? Because I guess you could have gone and started your own company or you know, the path that you've taken where you're more of an enabler for other people's companies. Yeah, when I left the Air Force, it's funny, I sat down with my wife in uh, up in Scotland when I was trying to work out what the next steps would be. And it was her that highlighted actually that it was when I spoke about doing startups and getting involved in that side of things that I really lit up. And that was, and I thought, yeah, she's right. That is actually what I really want to do. So in many ways, the four-year transition through BA systems was unplanned. And I, I knew I wanted to do something in that environment. I just wasn't sure what. Yeah. I'm technically minded, but I am not technically qualified in any sense of the word. I don't even have an undergrad degree. So I had to work out where I was relevant and where I could add value. And for me, it's in the execution of, of an operation or a plan or a project and pushing things through kind of in the, in the face of adversity, getting those things done. Yeah. And so what we've built upstairs here is, I think, really a team of doers who will just break down doors and get stuff done. And I think there's a real value to be had in that if you pair it with the technical expertise, if you can translate at least what the, what the technical expertise is saying. Talking about Chem Future Tech, how did it come about? You know, how did you start to build it? Yeah, it's actually the third startup I tried to build in the background while I was going through that corporate world. I did one which was to do with licensing and sponsorship, which was great fun. And we raised some investment. It was really more of a lab for learning. And we had some great successes. We underwrote uh, Braemont Watches sponsorship of England rugby for three years, which was awesome. Got free tickets to Twickenham for every game and that kind of thing. But ultimately, we can blame COVID, product market fit, whatever. It was never really more than a lifestyle company, investors' worst nightmare. So I learned a lot through that process. It's been an interesting journey. Moved on to a more more tech-focused company doing quantum key distribution from low Earth orbit. That was really cool. Um, but ultimately, we had like one of those really technical contractual breakdowns halfway through a funding round. And it was really day one stuff that I should have probably learned on the master's in entrepreneurship, but had never properly internalized. And then so on attempt three, I came out to do this one. And the rationale for doing Cambridge Future Tech was a culmination of things. One was that I developed quite an expertise in the, the licensing sector from doing the brand licensing, and that's quite transferable to tech licensing. Simultaneously, I was seeing some frustrations within the corporate environment and the ability to support early stage deep tech from that angle. And then simultaneously, back here in Cambridge, I was mentoring on things like enterprise tech and seeing really great technologies come out with PhD students all over the place with great ideas, but not enough support in what I would refer to as the critical support gap between the ideation phase and pre-seed. And I can elaborate on that a little bit, but I think that we set up Cambridge Future Tech to bridge that gap specifically. And that was the sort of adventure that we set out upon when, when we built it. And on that point, you did, you posted recently about the article in Pitchbook that said that gap and that's specifically what you wanted to fill. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Partly we stumbled into it and partly by design, but the view is that prior to precede, hence it's, you know, and precedes at a variable position naturally, it's really difficult for an investor to deploy capital because there's not enough tangible things to measure. Maybe the team's not in place, there's not a technical roadmap. And specifically in deep tech, the ability to get through that phase without capital is very difficult because you might have a lot of technical development requiring lab space, hardware, more team members and expertise. And so you, what you get is this kind of like real stagnation of IP back at the ideation phase. Maybe that sits in a research group. Maybe they got out into an accelerator, but not much further and so on. And so you really need some serendipitous circumstance where 
a technical co-founder has someone with commercial expertise around them and they pair up and they get into a good situation and make it through. What it means is that there's an absolute ton of IP in the UK that sits back in the research groups and is never truly exploited. And that's what we wanted to try and free up and liberate by setting up a mechanism that would come in and get really resource intensive and hands dirty right back at the, the pre-ideation phase, like even pre-idea. So we'll go and scout a lot now into the research groups and spend a lot of time speaking to professors, trying to understand where their interests lie and what's being worked on so that when the exciting tech comes through, we're, we're primed to try and spin it out of the universities and, and commercialize it. That, that was actually going to be my next question to some degree. It's like, because you're operating at such an early stage, your scouting is, uh, you know, is really the key to success, right? So building those high quality relationships with the university is so important. And, and how do you do that alongside you know, the university's own kind of spin-out arms and uh, obviously different universities have different levels of, of kind of startup support. But um, certainly here in Cambridge, Cambridge Enterprise uh, is, is certainly well known. How, how does that kind of work? Yeah, I think we try to position ourselves as very synergistic. Certainly some of the smaller TTOs are extremely keen for that support. Yeah. And the largest of TTOs like Cambridge Enterprise have vast number of support mechanisms in place for for founders and for startup companies that are spinning out. I think even we start a phase before that and often we work with, for instance, technology that's being harboured under a professor who's never going to leave the academic environment and a team needs to be constructed from scratch. Mm. So there's not really even a team to receive some of the support mechanisms that are in place at the stage we come in. And so we might put a team together, then work with a tech transfer office to spin a company out through their mechanisms. And so it should be very synergistic. We should amplify the amount of deal flow they're seeing. We should amplify the success yeah. rates of the deal flow as it goes through. Um, and we should always be operating in a way that's positively contributing to that ecosystem. It almost sounds like, I don't know if this is fair or not, there's almost a, an element of persuasion to unlock this potential and actually bring it to market. There can be, only because I think that we have seen an uncanny discussion in several in several offices of professors where we're sat there and they'll say, yeah, I've got two decades of IP on this shelf here. We've never commercialized any of it before. And we'll we'll have a bit of a discussion about, well, have you got anything that could be really... And they'll say, well, actually, there was this one thing. We never really went and had a go at commercializing it. It just, we just didn't, we didn't, we weren't that way inclined at the time or nobody had an interest to spin it out. And we'll say, well, let us take a look at it. If it's of interest, we might, we might take it further. And that's really where it starts. Mm. So there can be an element of persuasion that going out and taking that tech to go and have a real world impact isn't so laborious that it's impossible. And we will help grease the wheels in the process and we'll start to feed it in through the correct mechanisms through the TTO and things. So that's really our, our role in some senses at that extremely early stage. But then once we're building the company, then it's extremely resource intensive. Mm. We've got a whole team of people upstairs with commercial backgrounds, market research, sales, who can supply everything on the on the kind of non-tech side of the business. So just before we jump into that, you, so you've talked about the academic pipeline. There must be the same for the corporate pipeline as well. You, you know, you mentioned enterprise tech. I know you mentor on impulse programs. So you've got companies like Henry Royce, for example, that are there and they're specifically looking for things to fix their problems. Are you, do, are you doing that as well? Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. So about a year ago, we started doing the same thing, but partnering with corporates. And so we'll, I, I knew this thesis should be correct because having worked on the other side of the fence in that very environment, I knew that there was a requirement for this type of innovation that couldn't necessarily garner the right 
board support resource or um, strategy or corporate knowledge internally to be able to, to do that. And so the idea was that we would go and start pitching corporates that where perhaps there were gaps in their third horizon tech strategies or where they had specific decarbonisation challenges in the short term, we would go out and scout for technologies to fill those gaps or to solve those problems. And then we would build them, we would build them out as companies as a service. So we started doing venture building as a service and that really took off last year and we're really chuffed with it. And actually it's quite a nice synergy because where we're building a company with a corporate, then we have even more unfair advantages for the startup who now has access into a vast amount of market expertise and those sorts of things. It's quite exciting. Supercomputing is becoming an essential tool of life sciences and pharmaceutical research. And increasingly, computing hardware is moving off-premise and into industrial-scale data centre facilities or the cloud. Operating award-winning data centres close to Cambridge, KO Data is proud to host Cambridge One, the UK's most powerful supercomputer, accelerating health research that spans medical imaging, genomics and drug discovery. With computing power and space available immediately and excellent connectivity to Cambridge's research parks and the cloud, KO Data is ideally placed to support advanced computing organisations of all shapes and sizes. Get in touch today at kodata.com contact. Let's jump back to what you were starting to talk about, which is what you offer to the startups that are in your portfolio. So take us through that, that startup journey, if you would. Yeah, maybe use a case study would be easiest. So we spun a company out last year from Newcastle University. We're working nationally and sometimes across border as well in semiconductor technology. It's called Minion. They're up and running now. They're still based up in Newcastle, but they have a presence down south as well. And we started off with Minion working with the professors and the tech transfer office to build the business case to justify the fact that this tech had a market. And we didn't just make that up on the spot. We'd done our research. We've been scouting around that area for a while. This particular proposition-based logic was very interesting to us and, and the way it could be applied in a commercial sense, potentially as an enormous, enormous market potential. So we worked with the TCO for quite an extended period of time to get through their sign-off procedures and to help the university feel confident that essentially the university has to take a huge leap when they license or assign IP into one of these startups that's been worked on for decades and that that was the right thing to do. We then went through the process of building out the governance, starting to put together the advisory board and all, all in the background we're doing the IP transfer paperwork and things with the university. This was maybe a 15-month process and building the team. So we start to look at the right individuals from the research group who might be applicable to come in and contribute in various different ways into the startup as it starts to gain resource. We won several grants in short succession and then raised some private equity matching to go with those grants. And we did that so quickly that actually we hadn't finished actioning the spin out when the grant money started coming in. So it's all it all starts to overtake itself. And then we put together the, the finishing touches. We brought the CEO in. We brought in uh, Noel Hurley, who's, who's a kind of industry stalwart, ex-arm, perfect candidate to go and lead a company like that and then finished raising the fundraising round and for that one we actually set up our own SPV we raised money from our own advisory network into it and invested into that company in addition to the the build I mean it, there's so much orchestration there and like you're involved in so many different aspects and facets of both building the startup and the venture but also you know working with the university I, I mean how do you, how do you scale that then because that sounds Incredibly resource intensive. It is incredibly resource intensive. Yeah, that's the point. And I, I kind of like the analogy of 
you used to be able to build an aircraft back in the day with like two people. And now if you want to build a new type of airliner or a fighter jet, you're going to take hundreds of thousands of people decades to put together a new a new platform. And I think the same goes with startups. In some ways, the romantic era of one or two founders sat in a, a university dorm somewhere, spinning up some web-based multi-billion pound company are, are gone. And you need a team and you need a multitude of skill sets. And we're not afraid to do that. We, ha- we just have a different operating model. We mm. like being really at the operating side and, and leaning into it. In terms of scaling, that's a really good question. So we had to be very systematic and we've had to put more systems in place at our end over the, the last couple of years. I think that we naturally, if I could show you some spreadsheets, which would really bore you, <laughs> the way our business model scales is proportionate to the amount of startups that we build, obviously, and, yeah. and the math works out. So yeah, we need a lot of resource, but then... That's why our model is that we come in extremely early stage when you can't invest money and we just pour operating costs on a huge team of people to get the job done. So then the company's eligible to raise money. It's a slightly different business model and we see ourselves more as co-founders in that sense because actually the way our team gets involved in those startups, they end up being very emotionally drawn in. They're co-founding these companies Mm. and often we're in there operating the company before we've recruited the team to operate the company. And then we have to sort of hand over the baby and help with the periphery activities more than the core activities once the funding's in. And that can be sometimes quite an interesting emotional journey to go through. So we really do see ourselves as co-founders in that sense. And we really are encouraged to get as involved in in the startups as possible. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it is such a different model to the, the perceived wisdom of, you know, agility and, you know, speed and scale and blah, 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 blah. I'll tell you in about 10 years if it's a good model or not, James. <laughs> it's interesting. It's fun. Are there any other of your portfolio companies you can talk to us about? So I know Mimicrete, obviously. Um, are, there, are there any others that you can highlight for us? And are you working in, you talked about semiconductor, obviously Mimicrete's completely different. Are you working in specific sectors at all? No, and by design, no, because we have the agility to move very quickly with different tech remits. We don't have restrictions from LPs like a VC might. We've got very patient, generational type capital, which is backing our company. So we intentionally don't. Although that said, we do we do have some strategic priorities internally. We're focusing very much at the moment on scouting activities around quantum techs. There are some energy storage technologies we're very interested in. And increasingly, we're working on the remit of the corporate partners that we that we build with. And they, they always have very specific requirements, and that's great. There was one that we didn't go ahead with last year that I can talk to you about, which was quite interesting. They wanted... Um, protein enhancement for chicken feed you know so like scouting the entire ecosystem for protein enhancements for chicken feeds is is actually quite a quick activity we were able to get very quickly down into some interesting bits of tech that we could see over in lincoln but on on a vaster scale if you're looking at different types of requirements from the corporate some of those are very specific and those are the really enjoyable tasks that we can get into Personally, I like the diversity. I remember when I first set up my company, I sat down with Peter Cowley and he was like, Faye, you have to focus, just focus in one area. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to. And actually it's proved to work very well for us because you then get those transferable skills. You know, what you can do in one industry can be completely radically different in, in another industry. So I think it's, you know, some people may not suggest that's a good idea, but personally I think it's, you know, diversity is a good thing. Yeah, there are priorities both ways. And like we sit down and have a strategy session every year where we say, should we silo ourselves in two or three different tech areas? Wouldn't that be great if we could build up expertise in just those areas but actually a lot of the areas we work in have so much overlap that kind of happens anyway 
we're sort of very narrowly narrowly looking at things in physics, robotics, metals, advanced materials. It's not that broad. We intentionally don't work in therapeutics. We don't really do much um, med tech. It's already very well supported in Cambridge. It's not our expertise, different funding profiles. So there are areas that we certainly steer clear of. But I, I think that our expertise is on the commercial side. And as long as we can access from our from our kind of surrounding network of experts and the people, and Cambridge is perfect for this, the right expertise to help us come in and diligence things properly and translate some of those diverse bits of tech that we're seeing, ultimately we can still get to the same place where we can support them with our, with our mechanism. So I've got a, a couple of kind of time-related questions. You kind of described how you're very hands-on with the formation of the company. In in terms of your model, how, you know, how long do they stay under your wing, so to speak, before they kind of transition out into an independent business that you probably obviously still maintain a stake in? But you know, how how does that work, or do you remain heavily involved in the operational side of all of these companies? Yeah, possibly too much. I mean, we I think we said when we started, we'll do whatever it takes to get them through, okay. and the way that's materialised is that certainly we're still supporting companies in intensively weekly if not sometimes daily all the way up to their second funding round okay because the second the first funding comes in immediately they've got requirements if not because of expertise then at least because of resource around recruitment suddenly they're managing people they're going through different types of experiences there's there, you know sometimes later down the line there's co-founder mediation to do there's all sorts of things that involve quite active support and before you know it we're on to the next round we're revalidating everything in the data room we're going through pitching coaching we set up a lot of the environmentals around being able to pitch to the right vcs because we spend a lot of our time nurturing those networks so that we can introduce people straight away to a great angel investor down in London or a family office out in the Middle East or a VC out in Palo Alto. And, and we can get that done much more quickly than the startups could if they were having to go and build those networks from scratch every time. So it can be quite, still quite resource intensive, even for the companies that are funded. But I'd like to think that after the second rounds, and we're only just coming up to some of the second rounds for our, our companies, um, our support, then we'll, we will back off and have more of a rifle shot approach. We'll still be non-exec directors and we'll still come in and make appropriate introductions but at that stage we're stepping back to more of a kind of vc role and we're we're just sitting on the board and, board and advisory, yeah. offering support where needed yeah, okay interesting in, in, in removing ourselves from the operational yeah. day today yeah and then the second question is like because it's such a kind of hybrid model do you have like a cohort based approach to this or were you just scouting all year round and when you find the right opportunity yeah. you pat you pounce it's funny because i talk about accelerators having cohorts and how we don't do that yeah and we we have a target for each year for the number of startups we want to build at the moment eight and we'll we'll do those ad hoc as we go through the year and we tend to have a a flurry of activity at the start of the year where we go right we need to focus on looking at deal flow and scouting and then about three months in we go oh no we've got too much like tone it down again tone it down again but the reality is that we do have to think of them in annual cohorts because it's the only way to rationalize which part of our team is supporting them and how much resource we should give them. Mm. And so it's funny because this morning I did a shareholder update call and it's the first time I had removed like 2022 vintage and replaced it with cohort one, cohort two. Okay. And I, I was annoyed at myself for using the <laughs> word cohort, but that's where we've ended up now. So, I mean, it is amazing how much you've done in only a few years. So what, what are you looking forward to in this current year? Uh, yeah, okay. So we've got, I mean, quite lofty targets. I think eight companies a year, given our mechanism, is is hard work and the team are are working hard. 
compared to, again, an accelerator that was working with maybe three cohorts of 20 every year, that might seem like a low number. But for us, that's very intense. And then we've got corporate work on top of that. So we're working very hard to keep up the systematic nature of what we do and make it as scalable as possible. But then the other thing that makes sense to us at the moment is that we have nine companies in the portfolio now, another few approaching the build phase. We should probably have 14 by July time, if I've done my math correctly. And what that means is that we have a whole ton of preemption rights and investment opportunities that we can't exploit for those second rounds and beyond. And that feels like a massive missed opportunity to us combined with some of the corporate builds we do where we get early exclusive access into some really exciting fundraising rounds that we don't have the capital to join in with. And that's really frustrating. So in the latter part of this year, we'll be looking in earnest at whether we should set up a fund. I think we've already concluded that we should. It's just a matter of looking at how we structure it, overcoming the hurdle of uh, people sucking through gritted teeth when you say you're going to set up a fund and seeing whether we can actually execute on it. We don't need to, but there's a massive missed opportunity if we don't try. So my, my final question, if you'll indulge me, I am going to go back to the typhoon. <laughs> so I distinctly remember when I passed my driving test being in the car on my own for the first time, being equally excited and terrified. What's it like being in a typhoon for the first time and being able to let rip? <laughs> well, the first time you take off in a fast jet, there is a sense of, okay, you can't switch off now because you you do actually need to come back and land it. There's a real sense of jeopardy and a quite healthy jeopardy, I think, in the fact that once once the wheels leave the ground, you're, you are now switched on for the next hour till you come back down. You can't just like take a minute off to have a breather and sit and have a drink. You are switched on now for the next hour or it's going to end in crisis. Mm. So there's a healthy jeopardy there, but it's, oh, it's un- unbelievable. Um, on the Typhoon itself now, there aren't many twin seaters left. So most people's first solo in the Typhoon is their first flight in the typhoon. Wow. So you step up a platform, you're in a, a fighter platform that costs tens of millions of pounds with ridiculous thrust to weight ratio um, and all the incredible kit that comes on a fighter like that. And the first time you strap in is the first time you fly it and there's no one in the back, you're by yourself. <laughs> so it's it's pretty amazing. But that also speaks to the quality of the synthetic training that's available and mm. the, the quality of the training you can get in the simulator to prep you for that. But I always think that's amazing. If I owned a £70 million fighter, I'd probably want someone to go up dual before before they first sat in it. Mm. But the reality is it's the, the training system works and it's fine. So it's quite it can be quite a big, quite a big thing. I actually I, I will let you in on on an exclusive, James. Oh, there we go. First, my first solo in a typhoon, I took off and was so like overwhelmed with the experience, I actually turned the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> So that was that was embarrassing, and I had like where did you end up? Some ma- some mates down in the spotters car park filming, and I sort of like twinkle rolled and went the other way again. So yeah, as though it was completely intentional. So uh, it was only for only for a second. That was amazing. What a career! Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time today, Owen. Oh, thank you for having me. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, The Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. 
There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919 600.